European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the podcast on Europe and its political extremes. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, what's happened to French President Emmanuel Macron's dream that ordinary citizens can lead a European political renaissance? We talked to Corinna Stratulet of the European Policy Center and Laura Sullivan of WeMove.eu about a form of democracy that's only going to work if authorities let it go. First, Tom and I talk acronyms and abbreviations, including those that stand for ways the European Union has long struggled to open up to citizens and shut down Eurosceptics. So, Tom... What's your favorite acronym or abbreviation? Um, my favorite one is Nadlyth. What? Yeah, or to give it its full title, it's N-A-I-D-L-Y-F-U-P-T-W-O-I-K-Y-H-I-J. So this comes from a Steve Bell cartoon. And there was a character in one of the Steve Bell cartoons, who's a, who's a cartoonist for the, for the Guardian, who was a policeman. And he came up with Nadlyth, which stands for No Argument, I Don't Like Your Face, Nadlith, and to give it its full, all the rest of it, it stands for No Argument, I Don't Like Your Face, Up Against That Wall or I'll Kick Your Head In, John. This was a period of time where not everybody was entirely happy with the cops. No, indeed. And in that period, obviously, it was just post the miners' strike. There'd been a lot of violence on the streets. There was a lot of violence in- involving the police. There'd been riots, race riots around various things. It'll be very interesting to see how that plays out in 2019 in the UK, because there are particularly on the far right. A lot of people are going around saying, well, if Brexit isn't delivered, there'll be a civil war in the UK uh, of one kind or another. And the police are playing a very, very, very careful, you know, very much trying to settle this stuff down and contain it. We shall see. But on both the left and the right, lots of people tend to hurl abuse at the police. So I always feel slightly sorry for them. So why all this talk about acronyms and abbreviations? It's because Europe creates a lot of them for its institutions and organizations to promote more involvement of citizens and quash all that criticism that the whole European project is remote, unaccountable, and elitist. You're talking about the EUDD, (laughs) or the European Union's Democratic Deficit, as it's also known. Yeah, the EUDD. So, Tom, quick quiz. You up for that? Yeah, go, man, go. All right. C-O-R. Committee of the Regions. Oh, man. Boom! He's on fire. On fire. This body was established in 1994 to give local and regional authorities that had lobbied for an increased say in EU affairs. But look at their website. There are quite a few references to how this body is the way to get the voice of citizens to decision makers in Brussels. The last budget I could find showed it costs around 90 million euros annually. All right. ECI. Uh, By the way, this is out of four. Right. ECI. So I'm going European Citizens Initiative. Oh, my God. Two for two for two. So this is a way of doing mass petitions to get Brussels attention. It's been up and running since 2012 
Once an initiative gathers one million signatures with minimum thresholds reached in at least seven countries, the European Commission must decide whether or not to take action. There have been some good initiatives here on water and citizenship, and notably the probably wise decision by the Commission to reject an initiative on singing the European anthem in Esperanto. I'm pretty impressed they got a million signatures together for that, though. That's, well, that's pretty I, good. I Actually, to be frank, I would probably sign that. Yeah, I... <laughs> <laughs> just, for the comi- just for the comedy value. To it's not clear to me that it gathered a million signatures, but there's a very formal letter from Catherine Day, who is the former Secretary General of the European Commission, rejecting this. I, I can't even say good morning in Esperanto. Like, I, I have no idea. You can't say good morning in Esperanto, <laughs> that's, but that's a... The fuck? <laughs> well, you obviously can't because you're Googling it. I'm Googling it right now. Good morning. Yeah. Bonan Matinon. And a very Bonan Matinon to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. You are two for two. Number three, EESC. Yeah, no, totally got this. So, <laughs> this is the. European Edginess Social Club. The European Edginess Social Club? Yeah, and it's for all those people who just feel a little bit uncomfortable in this space and just kind of need to express that in various ways, and they all go and hang out. It's the European Economic and Social Committee. And the European Economic and Social Committee is actually vitally important. It's a huge piece of infrastructure. So according to its proponents... The European Economic and Social Committee has a particular responsibility in bringing participatory democracy to life, and they say it's more in touch with popular opinion than other institutions and organizations. It was established way, way back in 1958 when people were wearing hats, a lot of hats. It's mainly a talking shop for employers, organizations, trade unions, and everything from farmers to the voluntary sector. It's also long been one of these targets for waste uh, accusations. Hella Thorning-Schmidt, the socialist former prime minister of Denmark, called for abolishing this body. She called it unfocused, inefficient, and too expensive. The last budget I could find put annual costs at around 130 million euros. They hold hearings on stuff. That's right. And you do get, and the polite way to say it would be broad range, the impolite way of saying it would be random selection of, of folks turning up at these hearings. I've done a couple of them on, uh, on climate and energy issues more recently, but in the past on intellectual property and various other stuff. You thought you were going to the edginess. Yeah, exactly. I thought I was going to the edginess club and I turned up, you know, with my black shirt done up all the way to my throat and a kind of bad beard. And uh, you, you get some very left field questions. You are three for three. You're going to get a slam dunk here because our last one is perhaps the most important effort of all at bringing citizen democracy into the EU. I'm totally not going to get this. Go on. Uh, I think you are. EP. Oh, the European Parliament. Okay. Oh, there you go. That was, okay, that was a bit easy. Yeah, it was a bit easy. <laughs> this is the body that represents nearly 500 million citizens, making Europe the world's second largest democratic electorate after India. And, of course, the parliament forms the only directly elected body in the union, and that system has been around since 1979. 
the problem here is that it's been an incubator for the far right and for national populists. And that is one of the great ironies. They definitely, it has been the venue in which those people have met, in which they've discussed, in which they've, you know, sorted out their plans, in which they've come together. And also, of course, in many ways, in which their many, many disagreements have also played out. I always find it quite interesting because, it, indeed, it's the only directly elected bit. But it's not the only institution which contains elected people. The European Council and also its kind of subdivisions, which are the ministers responsible for specific issues, finance, industry, environment, whatever. Right. European Council, heads of state and government and council of ministers. They represent the electorates of their member states. All those ministers are members of government that have been elected. And yet the narrative, the criticism of Brussels as being this kind of planet Europe without any uh, citizen input has plagued the project for the last two, three decades. And there is this unceasing effort to develop ways to respond to that. And that's a little bit what we're going to talk about in this show today. The dream that citizens, ordinary European citizens, can lead a European political renaissance. If only someone would gather these citizens, ancient Athens, Agora style, in groups fairly representing their countries and their communities, and in manageable numbers, so they can hash out answers clearly enough to get buy-in from national leaders. That was more or less the vision for a new participatory democracy that French President Emmanuel Macron proposed in September 2017. There should be, quote, a new method to overhaul Europe, Macron said in a speech in Athens, an opportunity for our peoples throughout our countries to discuss the Europe they want to see. All 26 other member states, minus the UK, agreed to go along with Macron's idea, mostly as a way to close the chapter on a long period of crises over the future of the euro and migration. Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, called for, quote, a process in which Europeans determine their own path and their own future. Unsurprisingly, at the national level, the French have been most enthusiastic, with around a 1,000 so-called citizens' consultations involving some 65,000 citizens from April to October last year. Yet these consultations got vanishingly little media attention. Organizers tended to play it safe, handing the microphone more often than not to experts rather than citizens. Most other EU member states held far fewer meetings than France, and by and large, the efforts weren't well-funded. Overall, there was no common name, no common branding, and the outcome remains pretty obscure. In Romania, as in other countries, the organizers did little to link with what citizens were discussing in the other 26 countries. But meetings were fairly well attended, with an average of around 100 or 200 people in larger Romanian cities. Italy mostly ignored the initiative, despite the fact that the Five Star Movement, which has long promoted direct citizen democracy, is now in government. Someone who has closely studied what's been going on is Corinna Stratulet, a senior policy analyst and the head of the European Politics and Institutions Program 
at the European Policy Center, a think tank in Brussels. I first asked Corinna what problem the citizens' assemblies, consultations, conventions, dialogues, and hearings, as they've been variously called, is actually trying to solve. They carry on the legacy aimed at improving. The democratic quality in the EU, right? Over many decades now, all sorts of attempts have been made to to improve citizens' participation in an engagement with European affairs uh, as a means of um, enhancing the democratic uh, legitimacy of the European Union. But despite this massive effort, if you want, um, we know that it hasn't really worked. I mean. To this day, most uh, European citizens uh, still believe that, that they have no power over the, the Union's future and continue to, to think that the European Union is distant and is unaccountable. Can we really call them a form of participatory democracy? Yes. So the participatory element is very salient, very strong, and that's the difference with previous reform efforts, which have been mostly institutional. Okay, and it's an attempt to shake up European democracy by new means, insofar as it really goes back to to the citizens, right, and to the member states, and asks them to 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 actually do something. Another way of putting this is, thank goodness they didn't create another organization in Brussels. Who can we give the credit to for developing these European assemblies, dialogues, consultations? Should it be the European Commission? Should it be French President Emmanuel Macron? And why have they gained prominence in the past couple of years? First, yes, you have Macron, who uh, in 2017 uh, won uh, the presidency and secured an absolute majority in the Assemblée Nationale. And this has happened at least in part thanks to this grassroots movement that profiled the uh, priorities and concerns of the French electorate through a network of more than 3,000 local communities. What they did, actually, they used then the the results of these discussions that they held in different parts of France at the local level in order to influence, they said, the Macron's electoral platform. And also has revealed that, well, there is quite a strong appetite for engagement in politics by different non-conventional means. Then Macron thought, well, why not do this at a larger scale at the European Union level in order to allow European citizens to have a voice in the EU construction? Macron's um, idea immediately won the support of uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, who saw it as dovetailing with the Future of Europe initiative that the Commission uh, was running. The European Commission has been organizing uh, so-called citizens' dialogues since 2012. Um, Shouldn't we give them the credit? Yes, of course. But I mean, this is the reason why the Commission sort of joined forces with Macron, in a sense, in trying to persuade the, the proliferation of this kind of, uh, of meetings across the EU, right? Now, why the member states decided to join, uh, I guess to a certain extent, they felt that the timing was right to try to re-energize uh, the, the Union after a period of crisis. Then with the wake-up call of Brexit, um, now we shouldn't forget that the terms under which the member states have agreed to join the initiative included a demand for flexibility. It took a bit of time to persuade them, including Germany. And in the end, not all of them really did their best, we can say, even though they all committed to it. 
And there were a little bit concerns at the beginning that maybe the process will be hijacked by radical extremist forces. And this hasn't happened, in fact. What about the opposite of that? What did, what did you pick up about whether people of extreme points of view were even interested in participating? I mean, well, didn't they just boycott them? Either they came to the meetings, but they were maybe in a minority where they did not voice their uh, um, their points of view, uh, or they boycotted uh, the meetings altogether. But we didn't find the the populist uh, hijack hypothesis, hijacking hypothesis playing out. There have been so many meetings mm-hmm. of different sorts over so many years. Mm-hmm. This is a very complex thing to describe uh, if, if you try to if you if you look across the member states everybody did whatever they wanted to do okay so they really pimped the events uh, to uh, to their own preferences to the timeline they have adopted and everything yeah so so most of the events were organized uh, by national governments with little involvement of civil society mostly top down from the government exactly and also the format has been mostly top down i mean the the most common format has been that of a high level panel discussion where you know you have uh, different officials uh, stating their points of view and then taking questions, okay, which is similar to the citizens' dialogues the Commission has been uh, running, uh, which are kind of town hall meetings, right, quite uh, far away from the idea of having citizens debate and engage with each other around uh, discussions about European issues. Also in terms of agenda, I mean, although uh, nominally these meetings uh, were about European issues, Oftentimes, they ended up discussing national or global politics. And especially if you had a uh, high-level official from the government uh, chairing the discussion, let's say, uh, it would quite often, it turned to uh, discussing uh, his or her uh, policy priorities and portfolio. It raises question about the ability to arrive at a coherent message. Uh, and without a coherent message, then the question that, that comes up is, what kind of impact this kind of process and and initiative can have. To that point, it was uh, foreseen that the heads of state and government at their December 2018 summit Mm -hmm. would indeed discuss some of the outcomes of some of these Mm -hmm. meetings. Uh, That didn't happen. I think it didn't make it on the agenda, but they did have some discussion, some conversation about this. However, there was no real output and no real next steps have been agreed. Generally, it was explained to the citizens that their input uh, would be discussed at the uh, 2018 uh, European Council uh, in December. But I I guess that's the most that we can say uh, regarding a common kind of understanding of what this process was all about. If the citizens at the end of all this, are left with the impression that their participation or their contribution to these consultations has not changed anything, either at the level of discourse or decisions, then this will only reinforce their perception that traditional politicians are unresponsive and unrepresentative and the EU is, you know, operating... <laughs> Uh, by itself uh, somewhere in a vacuum distant from their concerns and, and priorities, right? We don't know whether we're going to continue and we're going to have a second round of citizens' consultation. We hope we will, but we don't know. But we, we do have, I think, the contour of a new tool in the toolkit or in the toolbox that is our disposal to carry out large, large-scale 
EU democratic reform. If we, we have the conscious effort to improve and apply again the instrument and make this part of, not a one-time thing, but part of a more, of a continuous effort to reform European governance, then, then, then I think all this hasn't been in vain. Laura Sullivan is a prominent EU activist and the executive director of progressive campaign group WeMove.eu. Laura says the process of consulting citizens will only work if political authorities let go and let citizens themselves determine the shape of the debates and their outcome. Full disclosure, Laura and I plan a band together in Brussels. That means Laura is not just an expert in citizen-led democracy, but she's also a friend who shares a predilection for recklessly breaking into song. You have been warned. I first asked Laura for her thoughts on a 2017 video of a citizens' dialogue in Lisbon, organized by the European Commission and featuring Mara Sefcovic, one of the European Commission's vice presidents. Well, it's sort of a manal a la European, right? A manal. Yes. Can you explain that? A manal is a, a men-only panel, right? So it's already sort of disappointing before you get started. Even if these gentlemen on the panel are absolutely brilliant and no disrespect for Vice President Sefcovic. But in, in all fairness, this has to stop. This is the bullshit we're talking about. This is the complete lack of diversity. All white, older gentlemen who are giving their view. And is this a citizen's dialogue? This is a Q&A. You want to see more of actually getting people's ideas rather than, hey, I got this question and what do you think, Commissioner? I'm going to cut in next this promo video. Actually, let's just remind ourselves. You are the best educated, the healthiest, the best connected, the most international, most European generation in European history. You cannot have that legislation. So again, what what are we seeing here? This is a promo video for Europe's future relationship with 500 million citizens. Yeah. So what I'm seeing is first President Juncker talking about Africa in a not entirely, you know, in a sort of paternalistic way, followed by Timmermans telling Europeans the advantages that they have, which of course is really important, but is followed by, you know, an entire minute of indistinct chatter of sort of European officials talking at people, all with this sort of blue and orange background and some sort of dodgy music. I'm not quite sure how this is supposed to light the fire within the souls of those 500 million citizens. I just don't see this going viral. (laughs) That's most unkind, but I have to agree. I don't think we have a YouTube hit on our hands. You know, Uh, I'm sure that some of these events have been probably very interesting and engaging, but the material that is available online is just not inspiring. There is value in people participating in these kind of events. You can't completely kill this idea. Let's learn from this one and then completely change it, right? So let's talk about an example that really worked. There was the Citizens' Assembly in Ireland around, they had five sessions of a weekend over five months to talk about abortion, essentially, right? So 99 people 
deliberated over a load of material over five weekends. They heard submissions from law professors, medical experts, NGOs, as well as the first-hand experiences of women, students, youth, the Iona Institute, Amnesty, the church, the lot of it. I mean, they listened to a lot. And when it came out, 64% of them said that termination without restriction should be lawful at least up to 12 weeks and so on and so forth. This was such an important outcome for Ireland at a really sensitive time in advance of our own referendum, which led to a recommendation for an amendment to the Constitution. It's gotten into people's heads now that this experiment could be really interesting to reinforce the existing representative democracy we have. Because there's this false dichotomy, right, which is like, oh, God, we can't go with that because that completely undermines representative democracy. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to. How do you do that in a continent of 500 million people where everybody's speaking different languages? Right. You have thought about this in some detail. So we even got some commission funding for it a little bit. And WeMove has worked with the University of Liverpool and a number of other NGOs, European Alternatives, Declick, Demnet in Hungary, to organise these citizens' assemblies in four countries and online to talk about the question of what should the tool be? How do you liven up European democracy, right? To ask them, what do you think would be the best way? And what came out of it was that people felt this kind of a citizens' assembly, if you do it right, if you allow for feedback loops, if you give it time, if you invest in the inclusion you can really strengthen people's sense of belonging to the EU. You can really increase the sense of legitimacy around decision-making. You could really impact policy. So I was at this event in Liverpool to close off this project in December, and someone raised the question, how do you even get people involved in a citizens' assembly if they don't understand how democracy works? But actually it goes the other way around, because if you facilitate it well, it is through that process that people get more interested in and engaged in democracy. We've seen it happen. You could do one of these citizens' assemblies involving people across all of the member states in the question of, what the hell are we going to do with the common agricultural policy, right? Let's try and come at this from the angle of citizens and look at this more comprehensively and have this really good input. And and just to be specific, that would look different from what we were looking at on the videos of the European Commission citizens' dialogues because that was a group of people kind of taking questions from an audience. What you're talking about is almost like a... Uh, a sort of grand jury hearing or something. It's a grand jury hearing. In fact, they're often called citizens' juries when they're on a different scale. So it is exactly that. You get resource people to come and give evidence, but eventually people are going to deliberate on those arguments for and against. And other findings, I don't like the word learning, so I'm not Mm. going to use that. That's fine. (laughs) I use it all the time. Sorry. Shame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Do you think learnings should be banned? Or the, the you're, in, you're into learning. Oh, no, I'm not even conscious of this. I thought I was so self-aware. <laughs> okay, I've scrapped okay. that now from all my documents. Yeah, yeah, no, please do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are some of the other outcomes of the work that you did? So our role in this project, which was run by the University of Liverpool, was to run one of the citizens' assemblies in Germany. Um, where we have a presence, as well as to run the online... That was the one that was from the government? The German government? No. So the government was not involved in this. We organized it, NGOs working with academics. So we had four of the citizens' assemblies that were offline, and we also did an experiment online to kind of almost compare and contrast, well, 
you know, what are the pros and cons of doing each? And I mean, it's almost self-evident that the offline ones, the ones where people were engaging with each other, you, you, you're going to get, you know, a lot of quality of, of outcomes there. It's harder when it's online, but it's not impossible. And it's a really interesting experiment, particularly given the fact that people's lives are crazy. A couple of jobs, kids, whatever else. We're just all extremely busy, right? And if you can find a way to help people to get involved in democracy in a time when they can actually handle um, doing that, that's just, it's just a big advantage. How many people in the online part? How many people in the offline part? Right, right. That's also a very big difference. So it's it varied from country to country, but let's say on average 30 on in terms of the offline experiments. And then for the online, 5,000. So, yeah, we can put out uh, the request to a lot more people. It's, it's just more, it's more possible. In any of those citizens' assemblies that I've seen in the experiments across the world, I've never seen one bigger than about 200 people. It just gets really hard to manage, right? And yet the advantage of going wider is more inclusion, more diversity, right? Like, for example, in the experiments with 30 people, when you do it by sortition, it's really hard to make it representative of a certain country, right? Because it's just such a small number. So the bigger you go, the more potential there is there. Um, But you need some really good facilitation. Presumably, this is all about shoring up the European idea. But do meetings like this eventually get attended by populists and EU abolitionists, my instinct would be to say, no way. Then in what way does this exercise help to combat populism or the forces that are really creating populism and extremism? But the real advantage of citizens' assemblies is people need to listen and deliberate. What does that mean? It means to, you know, really deeply consider something over time, right? A series of five weekends. You you have to think about it. And it's amazing the extent to which people change their opinions through that. And this isn't something that's supposed to brainwash people and make them fall in love with the EU. But, you know, it's this fear of what we might get that needs to be tackled. And it might be great if some populism actually came into this because then you actually get people to talk to each other about it and it's the lack of that that's at the core of our problem right we don't we don't have that forum for the actual discussion what are they afraid of could they just think they're too stupid to i think it's more a fear that the diversity of responses could be too great to manage as well as um, this idea that people wouldn't be well enough informed and also If you have such an unstructured, unscripted form of assembly, the results that come out of it could put the decision makers in an awkward position with their principal constituents, which tends to be the government's rather than citizenry itself. Right. You know, you've really got to look at the bigger picture and where is Europe going? We don't want this project to die. You know, some pretty radical stuff is needed and the tools are there. And really, I mean, one of the great things that could be done really quickly is just to invest much on a much greater scale in some of this experimentation at the European level, like to almost make this like jury duty in the US or the UK, right? That you'd need to turn up for a certain amount of time, a certain number of weekends, paid a small stipend to make it worth your while. Why not? Let's do that, right? Let's help people to participate Because the alternative is we keep on doing the same thing of every five years you turn up for an election and in the middle, nada. Who turns up for the election? Right, exactly. Yeah. 
you're also working on mobilizing loads of Europeans to vote in May in the elections for a new European Parliament. As we know, voting participation rates are incredibly low in Europe. I guess there's some major German civil society groups behind this effort, too. That usually means something's going to come out of this. So tell me more. So our partner in Germany is Compact, which is an online campaigning organization. It's done a whole lot of amazing campaigning work um, in recent years to get German people involved in questions of the environment and social justice, essentially, right? And they really believe in Europe. These groups, groups like Compact, are pretty deep green and pretty dark red. Well, I mean, they're they're trying to appeal to people around the questions of people and planet because, you know, what else is there, right, <laughs> essentially? Um, so let's bring decision-making back to that is what they're trying to do. So for these European rallies, let's just, I mean, is the idea to do them before the May elections? Yeah. Okay, so how big could they really be? I mean, at the end of the day, as we've been discussing, people don't really feel European at the moment. The Second World War is kind of a distant memory, People don't respond emotionally to trade law, treaties, competition policy, like they seem to be responding to the idea of nation states at the moment. Yeah. We know that you can't really get people out there on knowledge and information, right? It's it's all about feeling. And what I've learned is that when you want to really get people going on Europe, for God's sake, don't say Europe first. First, talk about those real issues that are local to their hearts, right, that are really going to get them out there and then connect it back to Europe. If we just say to people, you know, we're going to do this thing on Europe, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work. Just to review, I mean, what are you saying about how the EU's attempts to get in touch with its citizens is really working out? I could just tell you, or if you don't mind, I could sing out my top points on how that's been working out. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What what key did you have in mind? Oh God, here we go. I'll give you a um I'll give you a C. Give me a C. About, give you a C? All right. Let it go, let it go. Don't hold it back no more. Let it go, let it go. Turn around and open the door. You should care what they're going to say. Or let the storm rage on. Cold never bothered you anyway. Whoa, bit too low there at the end. The cold <laughs> never bothered you anyway. You could sing that bit. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. You'll also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening. <laughs>